Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on this glorious sunny day here in sunny London. Uh, it is, of course, the actual anniversary of the D-Day landings. We had an awful lot of amazing stories yesterday on this show and also throughout the day. We watched incredible scenes from Portsmouth yesterday. Alex Dibble, our reporter, was down there. We interviewed some amazing people, uh, some of the veterans who have been travelling over to Normandy who are there now. will also be commemorating the day once again. Uh, there's all sorts of dignitaries uh, in Bayou uh, having a, a, a sort of a commemoration ceremony inside the cathedral there lots and lots of veterans have parachuted in lots of them have gone in on boats lots of them have gone in uh, on roads and uh, driving on uh, various cars and bikes and motorbikes we'll be talking later on in the show uh, to a group of people who are raising money for a veterans charity who have cycled over there uh, we are going to be celebrating it all the way through the show and i want to thank everybody for getting involved yesterday please do so again today today though we're going to talk about a lot of other things too including the disgraceful behavior of england football fans down in port last night, uh, who despite the fact that they knew it was D-Day, despite the fact that they knew we are in the midst of having a very delicate series of negotiations with the European Union, decided just to go back to the good old days and start throwing bottles at groups of Portuguese fans who were watching a football match with their children in the middle of Porto, a very fine city uh, in that lovely Mediterranean country of Portugal. What an absolute disgrace they are. I've actually had people on Twitter telling me, you're being unfair. They were being chased by the police. All we were doing was singing songs. Well, what sort of songs were they singing? They were singing songs about the IRA. They were singing songs about German bombers. They were singing songs which were basically racist, nasty, ghastly and horrible. And there is no place in the world for these people. And I want to help uh, you to help me to somehow punish them in such a way that they never do it again. They are a disgrace to their flag, to their football team uh, and to their nation, quite frankly. Coming up, uh, we're going to speak to Bob Neal, Tory MP for Bromley and Chislehurst, who's going to be talking to us about Michael Gove, uh, who's made his kind of official application for for the Prime Minister's job. And I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't think he's got what it takes to be the Prime Minister of this country because I think he's turned into Jeremy Corbyn. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that coming up very shortly. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the Independent Republic on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So here we are again, another football tournament, another collection of yobbos, another ghastly night uh, for the police in Porto, another terrible stain uh, on what used to be a very, very uh, good England football team uh, who are now playing in another tournament after great success in Russia, where, by the way, there was no yobbery, there was no thuggery, because none of these bozos bothered to go to Russia for fear that they might get their heads cracked uh, by the Gulag squad. So instead, they've gone to Portugal, right, and decided it's a great idea to throw some bottles and throw some 
some drinks over people with children trying to enjoy a night out watching a football match where Ronaldo happened to score a great goal. We'll get on to that a little bit later. We're going to go live over to Porto to speak to John Cross from the Daily Mirror to find out what on earth is wrong with these idiots. First, though, let's talk to Bob Neal, Tory MP for Bromley and Chislehurst. Uh, he's in favour of Michael Gove for Prime Minister of this country. I'm going to ask him why. Bob, a very good morning to you. Well, good morning to you. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, oh, there's cool. a lot going on today over in France. You know, we'll be tipping our hat to that yeah. uh, as we go. And we may have to cross over there live if something terribly extraordinary happens. But Michael Gove this morning writing in the Daily Mail. Uh, I'm rather uncharitably suggesting that he's doing that because it happens to be the newspaper his wife works for. Uh, she did a big piece the other day about her appearance at the uh, at the Royal uh, Banquet, which I thought was slightly cheeky. Um, but in his piece, right, he's gone, he's, he's gone all Jeremy Corbyn on us. He's kind of allowing for every possible event saying that I would delay Brexit until we got a better deal. And then at the very end, he says, but of course, if we can't get a better deal, we'll leave with no deal. Which is it? Well, I think actually Michael's being realistic, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I was, a, as you know, I was a Remainer, but I accept the outcome, uh -huh. but I want us to leave with a deal that protects jobs and so on. Now, if we can get such a deal, that's clearly the best way forward. And what Michael said at the hustings last night, as he elaborated his article, was rather than painting yourself into an absolute corner, as one or two, Boris and others, have done about it must be the 31st of October, on the day, on the, you know, on the stroke of midnight, come what may, he very sensibly, it seems to me, has said, well, look, if we're making good progress on the negotiations, if we're within sight of a deal, and it takes a few more days or weeks, for God's sake, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. I that, 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 seems, that, that seems sensible on the one hand, but you can't really argue, can you, Bob, on, on, on over, over here, if you get no deal, it's going be terribly bad for the economy but we'll do that if we can't get a deal because you know you have to either be in favor of going with no deal and this is where i find sort of theresa may's position was even sort of more crazy in a way than michael goes she ruled out no deal altogether and said well we can't have that and then she didn't get a very good deal well i think the point is this um because of the the, the legal position no deal on the 31st is the default unless we do otherwise. I think Michael's recognising uh, that, but it's not, as I agree with you, uh, the best scenario. What he's saying is if we're in a position to get towards a deal and the other side agree, then having that extra few days or weeks is well worth it to get an outcome at the end of the day. The one query, of course, is that you can't totally rule it out because it might just be that the European side of the negotiations say, look, we've had enough of all of this, um, uh, you're out. I think that will be a mistake on their part, but that could happen. So he's got to cover the position where, despite our best endeavours, um, uh, we might be forced out. But that mm. will be a bad outcome for all of us. Well, that's what I think. And, I mean, we've obviously got, I think, a, a limited amount of time to, to get to the, to the final two candidates for this race, right? And I'm told that that is all going to start in earnest kind of next week, and we, we may yeah. have a, a, a leader sooner than we think. That was the information I was getting yesterday. So when, if he was to become the leader of the Tory party and obviously then the de facto prime minister, when would he begin all of this? Because he talks about creating a full stop to the backstop, appointing a minister, making sure there was a union guarantee to be written into international law. I mean, all of this takes quite a bit of time, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think Michael's very clear that he's ready to start on day one as soon as he's walked through Downing Street. He gets on with putting the people in post and we go straight over and start uh, talking to our colleagues in Brussels. And one of the reasons I support Michael, although we were on different sides of the argument, is whatever else you think about him, love him or loathe him on some issues, he gets things done. You know, he got things done at education. He, he rattled a few cages in doing so. It was controversial. Yeah, he but some of those cages down. are still rattling, by the way. So there's a lot of people well, who yeah, didn't no, like what he did. Is, yeah, he, he 
he did grab hold of the civil service machine and make it move and go into, into top gear. He did the same at Justice, and he's done the same at the Environment. He's done a lot more as the Environment Secretary than most. Most people have never heard of DEFRA, but he's actually been producing really good new ideas on climate change and other things. He's actually been, he's got the ability to, to make the machine work in the direction that he wants. And he's, he's, done, lacking. he's certainly done an awful lot of stuff. Now, whether you like any of it or not, I don't know. And I mean, we've been told uh, by Theresa May's people that she was very, very strong and very resilient uh, and, and very sort of, uh, shall we say, determined to get something done. That proved not to be good enough in the end because the idea that she had just wasn't working. Similarly, I mean, it's all very well to say he gets things done, but if he gets things done which nobody likes, then that's not really such a good thing. Well, I think there's two things. Um, firstly, a new person, different personality. Michael actually is a much more outgoing personality, um, with all due respect to Theresa, and that's important in negotiations. Um, he's also a very good communicator. You do have to make the case, not just to your European colleagues, but to your colleagues in the House of Commons. I don't think, in fairness, that was always Theresa's so no. strongest suit. And, and listen, many, Michael can. And many people will say that they very much enjoyed watching him eviscerate Jeremy Corbyn in the way that they would expect a Tory leader to do. And he's a very uh, able communicator, as you say. He's a very able speaker, uh, he's very witty, he's very sharp, he's, he's all of those things. My worry about him, and my worry is, is a general one for the whole party here, not just for, for Sir Michael Gove, is that he's not very conservative. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we've now suffered under the yoke of various different changes throughout the course of, you know, recent Conservative Party history. I mean, David Cameron was closer to Tony Blair than he was to Margaret Thatcher. And in the end, we've sort of arrived at this place where, as Andrew Bridgen has told me in the past, um, and whether you like him or not, I don't know, uh, he said the trouble with the Conservative Party is there's not enough Conservatives in it. Well, the Conservative Party only wins elections if it gets the centre ground. I mean, Margaret Thatcher actually recognised that, and we, people think Margaret was quite right-wing and ideological. When you look at it in practice, she wasn't. She was a very pragmatic person. She had pretty strong opinions and views, uh, and she worked hard to deliver them. But in fact, she was uh, pretty shrewd, and I think Mike was in the same uh, mode. Um, I think the other thing is this. The, like it or lump it, the big fault line running through the Conservative Party at the moment uh, is, is Brexit. Uh, Michael was able to say, look, I have been uh, a lever all of my career, all of my adult life. He, people know him as a student, so he was uh, against our being in the EU. So he, he's, he, you can't say against him, as was sometimes said against Theresa, oh, her heart's not in it. Um, she's not really trying. Clearly his heart's in it, but he's been pragmatic um, and I think commonsensical about how we get there. Now, now, some people have said uh, in the Tory party that they don't really want to have anybody take over the party who was in Theresa May's cabinet right at the end, which, of course, uh, includes Michael Gove. What's your view of that? Because there are many who think that her cabinet was kind of, um, shall we say, sort of slightly negligent in the way that it operated in terms of getting rid of her sooner, in terms of being kind of flaky on what it was that she was trying to do and the way that it was not really united. You know, it wasn't... If you were a politician and you wanted your epitaph written, you wouldn't want it written that you remember of Theresa May's cabinet at the end? Well, I think a new leader forms her own cabinet, but I think there's a reality. I think be, the people who make that argument are, are, are coming at it from the point of view that they are almost looking as if we were in opposition. When you're in government, you're taking over as Prime Minister a going concern. Inevitably, you're going to be keeping on an awful lot of the personnel who are already there. You'll make some changes, probably some very big and important changes, and I'm sure Michael will. But ultimately, uh, you've got to know how to run the machine. And I think the idea that somebody walks in and takes over as chairman of the board of a big PLC who's never even been sitting around the boardroom before 
isn't a realistic one if, as we were just saying, we want to really get on and drive ahead and get things sorted out. But I have to say, I'm still going to return back to the Michael Gove plan as it is laid out in the Daily Mail. It says, one, no to an early general election or second referendum. Understandable, easy to grasp. Number two, aim for an October 31st departure from the EU with flexibility to introduce a short delay if a deal is closed. Also kind of easily understandable. Three, and this is where it starts to get difficult for me, create a full stop to the backstop by appointing a minister who would have their own dedicated funding to resolve the Irish border problem. That's a problem for me because to resolve the Irish border problem, well, it's not really necessarily that easy, is it? It's not easy, but I think it is doable. And the point that, again, Michael was elaborating at the hustings I was at is that even within the current withdrawal agreement, and trying to rewrite the withdrawal agreement is uneasy, it's going to be wasting time, um, there is, as well as the backstop, also in the text, the commitment to developing uh, alternative arrangements. And frankly, we didn't spend anything like enough attention on that. Um, Theresa had got wedded to the backstop as the one and only solution. What Michael's saying is, was well, the other bit of the text, which legally is still there, the alternatives, that does involve having a dedicated pot of money actually to ramp up the sort of work we do on technology, to ramp up the sort of money that we might put into those border communities uh, uh, to compensate for any delays and difficulties. So that's the idea behind it. Do you have somebody who's specifically tasked up for driving forward this alternative? Yes. No, I get that. No, listen, everybody's, look, everybody's looking for an alternative. It's like people saying that we're looking for an alternative to fuel. You know, but we haven't got one yet, yeah. and there's no necessary uh, way of finding it. Well, well, the evidence suggests that there is technology out. I think most people, a lot of the Brexiteers will say, yeah, we can do this through various forms of facilitation, but it's not there yet. Now, if we put enough ministerial energy and resources into driving that forward at a much greater pace than before and get the Irish government on side with us, and if I go, for example, I'd be very happy to say if there is technology that has to be installed uh, in Irish government offices or firms, we, we ought to be prepared to stump up for that because it was our decision to leave. Uh, they shouldn't be able to pocket over it. They well, I mean, you know, on the other hand, you could, on the other hand, you could you could you could just look at uh, Leo Varadkar's face when Donald Trump talked to him about building a wall <laughs> yesterday, yeah, well, which right, was yeah, perhaps yeah, one of the funniest uh, <laughs> one of the funniest looks of all the, the last few days that yeah, we've had. Yeah. But what about yeah. number four? That a union guarantee to be written in international law to aim at reassuring the DUP Brexit cannot drive a wedge between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Now, which brings us back to the DUP, of course, who are the really uh, the kingmakers still here because they're still part of what is required for a Tory majority in the House of Commons. So the arithmetic, if he doesn't have an election, is still the same, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and that's why some of us have said that, you know, uh, having a, a leadership election at this stage, which Michael did not want to have, he's stuck by uh, Theresa to ensure stability, doesn't help because it doesn't change the numbers. What it does do is this. Um, Michael is, above everybody, a unionist. Uh, and, yeah, we've always been a Conservative and Unionist party, and that applies to Northern Ireland and to Scotland. His Scots background actually gives him a bit more credibility than others as a unionist. He's not sort of a, a, an English nationalist type of Brexiteer. He actually genuinely believes in keeping the whole of the UK together. And he can demonstrate that in his personal life. He's, he's got, I think, good relations. I know he's got good relations with the DUP people. Uh, and I think if we sit down and say that we're going to have uh, a dedicated minister and a team to work with you to get solutions that work 
for your side of the border as well as with the people on the Republic side, I think that's a very positive. We can actually strengthen our relations with the DUP. OK, you make it sound very simple. Finally, number five, uh, aim for a Canada-style free trade deal with much more control over trade policy than Theresa May's deal offered. Now, again, we're told by the EU, and I don't necessarily believe what they say, uh, that there is no renegotiation to take place. The deal is the deal. Uh, what makes him think that he's going to get a different deal in Brussels? Well, because uh, there is, that's to mix up the withdrawal agreement, which is the divorce deal, and the future arrangement. And I think the Canada style is a future arrangement, which actually Barnier himself was prepared to put on the table yes. uh, earlier on. Uh, revamped and made stronger, I think is doable and is consistent with their own arguments. Uh, and also, of course, we are going to be dealing uh, with a new commission coming in, uh, who, with the changes that's happened in the elections in the rest of Europe as well, may themselves want to be more flexible around this. OK. And, Bob, as far as the uh, sort of the race itself is concerned, um, I don't know how closely associated you are to the Michael Gove sort of um, uh, efforts, as it were, but what is the arithmetic looking like from your point of view? Who would you expect to end up as the two final candidates? Well, I think anyone that uh, uh, makes predictions on Tory leadership contests, history shows, is almost certainly sure to get <laughs> egg on their faces. Um, but what I am uh, certain of, and what it is, is that we've got good and strong support amongst members of Parliament. Of course there are other candidates um, with uh, support out there as well, but Michael is getting really good support and good traction, and I'm sure that when it comes down to it, he's going to be up there in the front of the field, and he's, he's going to win. Okay. I believe that we can win. All right, Bob, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Bob Neil, Tory MP for Bromley and Chislehurst, has felt firmly and squarely behind Michael Gove. I'm not sure Michael Gove is the answer. His um, uh, policies seem to be all over the place. He said he wants to get a better deal from Brussels, but he also will leave with no deal. He wants to get an extension to Brexit if it means getting a better deal. I just don't think he knows what he's doing. I think the fact that he's come out uh, and written in the Daily Mail, uh, which happens to be the newspaper his wife works for, uh, his wife, of course, uh, earlier last week telling us that he's very, very quaint, you know, he doesn't know how to fill a dishwasher. Well, I still stand by what I said last week, which was I don't want somebody running the country who doesn't know how to operate a dishwasher. I don't think that's a plus at all. But maybe you think Michael Gove is the answer. I don't. Oh, 344-499-1000 is the number to call. Get involved, become part of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's the only common sense you can get at this time of the day. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we're going to cross live now over to John Cross, Daily Mirror's chief football writer. Uh, he's in Portugal. He's not actually in Porto. Where exactly are you, John? Very good morning to you, Mike. I'm in Gamares. Oh, Gamares. Is, is that where the game's yeah. going on tonight? The game is happening t t tonight, Mike. So, you know, I've, I've obviously viewed from afar, from, from down here, is where obviously England held their pre-match press conference last night. Um, viewed from afar the shocking scenes in, in, in Porto last night. If I just paint a picture of what, what Gamarish is like yeah. for you. It's like an old historic city. It's a very small place, population just over 100,000. And, and I have to say, it's a really lovely place with lots of squares, lots of historic places. But I have to say, it's a little bit concerning just because there's obviously a lot of opening open places on those squares for fans to, you know, drink, be merry, and let's hope behave themselves. But it, uh, obviously, on the back of what happened last night in Porto, 
I think people are right to be a little bit concerned. Well, exactly right. I mean, you're, you're a veteran of these tournaments, John. You've probably yeah. covered more Euro uh, tournaments, and and this is a new one, isn't it? This this Nations League tournament, which was meant to be a kind of a junk to to what to do when there's nothing going on at a World Cup or a, or a European Nations Championship. So they've sort of added this one in, if you like. But we've just seen two big events in football: the Champions League final in Madrid between Tottenham and Liverpool, where there didn't seem to be too much trouble, from what I could see. Uh, and obviously, we know that not that many fans went to Baku. Uh, for the uh, for the uh, for the Europa League game, but why suddenly is this always happening when England play? Yeah, Mike, there does seem to be a different culture. I'll be I'll be honest with you. I, I was at both of those previous European finals you just mentioned, and particularly I think where where in Madrid you saw the fans brilliantly behave. The Liverpool and Tottenham fans, you know, got on well together. The only worry there, I have to say, was perhaps the heavy-handed nature of some of the Spanish police, rather than the other way yeah, around. It, right. it really was. Yet, I, honestly, I got on a flight from London to Porto on, on Tuesday afternoon. It, it, the, the stag do culture just kicks in. Yeah. I don't know what it is about this, but they're basically they're drinking from, from a huge, great neat bottle of vodka. Everyone's, you, you know, treated it as... They're all in their sort of Stone Island uniform, and it's, it, they're all treating it like this kind of week-long stag party. It, they're out of control. They yeah. really are. I mean, it, in fairness to the FA, they put out a pre pre tournament, you know, campaign to kind of don't be that that idiot. They condemned it again today, but it is it is this whole culture around it. And I, I should stress, I still believe it's the minority. But when you see these sort of things, it's it's harder and harder to de to defend. I think the average England fan, it really is, which is a desperate, desperate shame. Well, it really is. I mean, I was on Twitter last night following, uh, obviously, what was being put out. Talk Sport was putting quite mm. a lot of video out there. Adrian Durham's out there, as is Darren Goff. You'll probably run into them at some point if you haven't already. And basically, they were saying, you know, what is wrong with these people who have to go to foreign cities, foreign lands, and sing these ridiculous songs. And I was getting into it with some of the fans who were actually out there who were saying, oh, they're not doing anything, we're not doing anything, we're just singing. Well, they're singing songs about the Second World War on D-Day, about German bombers. They're singing songs about the IRA. It's just not on, is it? No, it really isn't. I, I, I think the FA have, in the last you know, couple of years, they've had real big incidents. I think particularly there was a friendly played in Dortmund, for example, where you had a lot of kind of, you know, German songs uh, with references to the war. Yeah. And I think there was a point in time where the FA really tried to clamp down on this. And last night, it, you're right in, in what you say, the parallels between, the, the, you know, the D-Day heroes, the every, everyday heroes of incredible bravery. Mm. I mean, you know, how England fans can kind of disperse those memories is, is beyond me because, really, they wouldn't know the first thing about it, you know, the sort of the, the bravery that went into that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be singing it. They no. really wouldn't be. It's, it's, a, it's a shocking sort of reflection on, a you know, a group of England fans which... You know, I still like to believe it's the minority, but as I say, it, 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 we have these. Whenever we have these sort of kind of large gatherings, it really is, it seems to get out of control. Yeah. It has become an embarrassment for the England national team. Well, it has, particularly since Gareth Southgate's done so much and gone so far to kind of change the mindset around England in a way, because uh, you know better than anybody that not just the, f the football success on the pitch uh, that happened in Russia at the last World Cup, but but a general kind of sense of, you know, respect for each other, respect for their fellow players, respect for other countries. You know, I think Gareth Southgate's done a lot more for the England team than, than just their performance on the pitch. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you, Mike. I think that it was interesting, wasn't it, in, in Russia? I guess a lot of people were put off and, and you, you know, maybe didn't have the sort of the vast numbers of England fans. But those who did go were brilliantly behaved and people like me were talking constantly about this new connection between the team and the fans. And the fans were sort of, you know, falling in, back in love with the team. You know, we're, we're worshipping Gareth Southgate, you know, singing songs about Gareth Southgate and his waistcoats. I mean, it was just... It, it was a it was a lovely thing, and I just think that those sort of unfortunately those sort of memories and the, the, the positivity that we had around that is quickly erased from the memory because of incidents like we had mm. last night in Porto. I can't stress enough, Mike. I do I do worry, and the locals are worried. Believe you me, here, here in Gamarish, because it, 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 you're talking about those big open squares, the historic nature of of, of, the, of the city. It's a small city. And you've just got to hope and pray that there's no repeat today. Hopefully, you know, the, the, the Europe-wide condemnation of, 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 you know, this minority's behaviour yeah. will, will shame the England fans into, into not putting on a repeat today. Sure. I mean, there was a time when, when um, UK police officers, specialists, would travel with the England mm. fans and they would help the sort of the local authorities to deal with any troublemakers. Does that still happen or has that kind of faded away? No, no, you've still got that. You've still, you've still got a sort of a strong presence. You've still got that intelligence. Um, I do think the FA, I think, you know, really tried to step up their work with, with their own sort of kind of fan, sort of staff, if you like, sort of, you know, they do do some really good work. And it's just difficult to sort of kind of realise and appreciate that when you, when you see scenes of last night. But no, there are police around, and I, and I guess, they, they were prepared and braced for it as, as soon as sort of England fans came in their big numbers. There's bigger numbers of England fans, you know, than there are Dutch. There's a lot of Dutch around, though. Um, and, and you've just got thousands and thousands and thousands of, of them descending upon Porto. And, and you know, today it'll be Gamarish. And will it be something that uh, UEFA look into as far as, you know, arranging to have these tournaments in certain places which maybe aren't quite as good at others as, as, as sort of policing them? But, I mean, it's not that they should have to do that because, would, I mean, is there anything likely that could happen to England as a, as a football association that could they be punished for this? Yeah, they could, they could face punishment. I, d I do think the UEFA will have to look at it. I mean, the only thing I would say is that the sort of Euro 2004 was hosted in Portugal... And, you know, it's one that sort of I was at. And, and I have to say, the mood then was very different. You know, it was, it was across Porto, it was across Lisbon and other cities. And, and, and it passed off OK. I don't think we can sort of excuse it, um, blaming on kind of whether the, the places are suitable or not. You know, there's always going to be perhaps opportunities, you know, sort of for, for the fans to, to, to create mayhem and sort of wreak havoc. But... I, I, I just think that sort of the England fans, you, you know, that, that were on the rampage last night have just caused embarrassment for the whole country. And I don't really know what you're going to do to stop that because if, if people are, you know, completely intent on this stag do culture yeah. of, you know, getting drunk, creating mayhem, seeing it as a sort of a good week away, and that's part of the deal for them. It really is. And how are you going to change that mindset? I'm not sure that you can. It's a really depressing prospect. Yeah, but for some fans as well, it used to be part of the day out or part of the, the week out uh, that you got into fights as well and had sort of running battles with the Dutch or the Germans or, you know, the Italians or whoever happened to be around. But I would have hoped that those days are long gone. Yeah, I, I think what we saw last night in, in Porto, and again, rather like you, I'm watching it from afar, 
um, really, I do think you saw a lot of, uh, you know, having spoken to, to sort of news reporter on the ground who we had there sort of last night, it's sort of running battles between fans and police rather than rival sets of fans. I do think the worry is that basically, you know, if the fans clash, um, can you imagine, by the way, if England win tonight, mm. which is a wonderful prospect, let's not forget that, but it will be an England-Portugal final in Porto when everyone congregating on, on, on that city, it will, you know, that will take a hell of a lot of policing and yeah. a hell of a lot of control to, to make sure it, pieces, it passes off uh, peacefully. I mean, two things to mention from what was being said last night. A lot of people there saying, well, of course, the police are very heavy-handed. Well, of course they're heavy-handed. They're heavy-handed for a reason, because they're expecting the England fans to behave badly. When they're throwing bottles and drinks over uh, family groups who are trying to watch the football locals from Porto, you know, that simply can't be allowed to happen. The other theory that some people from this side of the pond were putting over was that one of the reasons there's a problem with these travelling fans for England is because they're all fans of lower division teams. Is there anything in that? Look, I, you know, I think it's evident that, that basically sometimes the England the England fan culture does, does tend to come from, from sort of maybe lesser teams. I don't know why why that is. I mean, sort of kind of, you know, there was, there was sort of, uh, sat around me, the, the, you know, on, on the flight over, it was it was completely full of fans from, from the North East, particularly Middlesbrough, right. for, for example. But it was just, I, I'm not sure I really, you know, buy into that. I, I do think that, that, that sort of the vast majority of England fans really are well-behaved, do, do, do themselves credit. And whether they're sort of from the bigger clubs or, or the lesser clubs, I guess the feeling is that the sort of the... The bigger clubs, you enjoy it more with with your, you you, you know, with your clubs. Mm. So you don't have to sort of go in search of sort of glory, and uh, you spend enough sort of sort of following them round. You know, one of the most loyal England fans I know happens to support. You you, you know, does sort of follow at home and away. Uh, happens to support Arsenal. So I don't think it's completely, you know, across the board. But it's still no excuse, is it? It's still no it's excuse. It's not. For I'm, I suppose, sort of I mean, I, I, I could see it from the point of view of, you know, if you are an Arsenal fan or you're a Chelsea fan or a Man United fan or a Liverpool fan or a Man City fan, you're going to get travel trips abroad quite frequently in European competition. Mm. But if you're a Sheffield Wednesday fan, uh, you know, the only chance you've got is to go with England. And I'm not singling them out, but you know what I mean? So it's a kind of, it can be mm. a lad's day out, a lad's weekend if you're a load of Sheffield Wednesday fans. Yeah, I, I, I get that, I, I, and, and, I, and, and I sort of do see that. But I mean, it, it, there's a lot, there's a lot of really hardcore loyal fans that sort of you know go away. I mean, you know, become pally with sort of a Southampton fan, for for example, who sort of goes home and away, and is probably more interested these days in England than Southampton. It's just, it's, it, it is a quirk. It is a quirk that basically the, the fan base sort of kind of probably the majority don't support Premier League teams. But I don't really think that's kind of... It, it, I, I don't know what that says about the sort of kind of the support and the behaviour. I don't think it, it, it should matter and I don't think it probably does. But, it, 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 you know, it, it's, a, it's a weird sort of quirk. But mm. I, I don't know what the next step is, Mark, because I, I, I sort of did the game... You, you know, you might remember sort of the, 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 as part of the sort of the qualification for the Nations League finals, we sort of played... Uh, Croatia um, behind closed doors in Croatia, and what a terrible occasion that was. Yes. When basically the stadium had been closed down, you know, um, because of sort of the fans excluded because of sort of previous 
problems. And, and, and I have to say, it was a thoroughly depressing experience. Yeah. The last thing we, we would want, and, and ultimately, you know, it could be UEFA sanction is playing behind closed doors. Yeah. Or indeed, well, it's indeed a shocking... the FA not taking tickets yeah. for foreign away games, which I think, again, is bound to be is bound to be an issue which might be discussed. It's a really, really depressing scenario that because it, it is. Would, it would deny the really good loyal fans. Well, because having come so far uh, and suddenly having England as a, as a as a sort of team that people are interested in watching again and who are playing quite good football and who are attracting youngsters to the game and all of those things that they've been doing positively to have this ridiculous nonsense return and bring a focus on the game which really we could do without. Um, it's a shocking state of affairs. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, listen, we, 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 we've reveled in the fact, haven't we, that sort of the Premier League is the best in the world. We've had four teams across the board, across the two finals, perhaps proving that. Um, and, and yet, you know, and, and indeed, we sort of kind of love the way that sort of Gareth Southgate has made England sort of enjoyable mm. again. I have to say, this week, Mike, has really brought us crashing back yeah. to earth. It's awful. And I do think it's a sort of a terribly you know, sort of chastening sort of experience that's hopefully, you know, will shame a few of those England fans sort of that who were misbehaving last night and behaving much better in the next sort of coming few days. Well, I hope you're right and I, I share your optimism, but uh, I'm not sure uh, that I could uh, believe that that is going to be the case. John, thanks very much indeed. John Cross, Daily Mirror Chief Football Writer. The game is tonight, of course. Uh, you'll hear all that on TalkSport, uh, our sister station. But it really is an awful place to have to go back to after having emerged from that ghastly period of hooliganism back in the 1970s, uh, back in the 80s, back in the 90s. You know, why has it not gone away? I'll tell you why it hasn't gone away, because of people like Scott, who's tweeted me and said, there's lots of countries' fans constantly getting away with racism, violence, etc. Yet the minute we cause trouble, I'm not condoning it, the world jumps on it. I'd like to know if these fans boozed up were provoked in any way by the locals or more probably the police. Yeah, they were probably provoked by loads of groups of families with children watching Portugal score a goal. That's very provocative, isn't it? Uh, police standing around trying to make sure that nobody breaks the law. Terribly provocative, I know. Why don't you just get completely bladdered off your face and start throwing bottles at them? That's a great idea, isn't it? Scott, get a life, mate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, funnily enough, people talk about social media being a terrible, terrible thing and not being a cause for good at all and encouraging people to embarrass themselves and abuse other people and, generally speaking, uh, make the human race a worse place. However, uh, it was on social media yesterday that I spotted a tweet uh, that was about uh, this, comp this uh, campaign called Back to 60. And it's Joanne Welsh I'm going to speak to now from that particular group. She's outside the High Court uh, because a landmark legal case was launched yesterday, uh, basically where women are challenging the decision to to hike their state pension age, uh, where they're going to have to work for many more years than they thought they would have to originally. Joanne, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome to the show. Hello, Mike. Thank you for inviting me on. Delighted to be here. No, listen, we, we're delighted to highlight this because we spoke about this before now, some weeks yeah. ago, and an awful lot of women called into the show, told us how awful it was for them. So it's, a mass, it's affecting an awful lot of people, isn't it? Do you know what? Many women, not all women, many 50s women were on their knees with this, being, you know, robbed, and there is no other word for it. Right. 
but now they're warriors. They know more about pensions, politics and social media than they ever wanted to know. And yesterday in court, my goodness, you know, it was ecstatic. At the end of the day, we were so high because our legal team did a great job. And I'm not just saying that, you know, I, that, was, that was the case. David Henke did a blog last night and it broke the internet. I mean, you know, it was it's such a lovely feeling. The women are literally, uh, I mean, the, the, the atmosphere is electrifying. <laughs> They're so excited. <laughs> well, I can hear, and I think I can hear some of them in the background there, yeah, sort yeah, of uh, yeah. shouting and cheering. We were you know, you never walk alone. Great, excellent. Got, we're, we're making a film. I mean, you know, listen, everybody who feels they're facing an injustice Stand up and speak truth to power because it's just the best feeling. It's uh, absolutely you know. brilliant. Let's just let's just row back slightly on where we are, Joanne, because this was something yeah. a decision made in, 19, in 2011 by the, yeah. the the then government to basically mm -hmm. hike the age for women from yeah. 60 up to 65. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what happened was in 2010. This is a pricey. The coalition government said, "Yeah, no problem." These changes won't be made until 2020 for anybody. Then in 2011, post the um, financial crash, they changed the goalposts and said, actually, you, 50s women and 50s women alone will have to wait up to six years. I mean, come on, is that not discrimination? Yeah. We've just been interviewing three women who are sisters. You want to hear their story? I mean, their story alone exemplifies the discrimination with their ages, and they've got another sister they were talking about. You know, it was just astounding to, in one family, the impact, you know. All hard-working women, they've done all the right things, paid the taxes, paid national insurance, raised families, cared for the elderly these days. You know, would love to look after grandchildren even. You know, they don't, you know, not everybody. Some people want to go back to work. That's their choice. Mm. Fine, go back to work. But if you don't, if you want to be granny, so to speak, um, and enjoy your retirement well, that you'd look for all your life, why should anybody deprive you of that when you're there, your earned dues? Some women started work at 15 and they've paid up to 50 years contributions. They're forced back to work. So how many more contributions do they want from them? Yeah. I mean, they keep messing about, is it 30 years, 35 years contributions? So they've already got too many contributions. And, and they, you know, they're saying to them, well, you know, go back to work. Uh, don't worry about how many contributions you're going to be getting. There's only a maximum yeah. uh, pension you're going to get. It's just outrageous. It is, you because also for an awful lot of women who had prepared for their retirement, who had planned yeah. for their retirement, they might have wanted to sell up whatever they had and move somewhere else, or they might have, you know, wanted to move closer to their grandchildren, whatever. I mean, it's disrupted a lot of lives, this, hasn't it? Uh, I can't tell you, uh, yesterday, at the end of the day, women were coming up to me because, you know, they can't approach the legal team. They were coming up to me and please, saying, please, please tell them what they've done for us alone today has made us feel so better about this because we, we know that in the corridors of power, everything that, you know, is happening, we've got representation. It's good for their mental health, which was a side benefit, Nobody had anticipated. I mean, they're, they're literally, they're different people. I mean, there are still others who are really in severe mental states. But, you know, the ones that have cottoned on and thought, Do you know what, I'm going to fight this, and there are thousands of them, 
they're, they're fighting it and they're not going to let go. You know, no. we're going to be making film after this and um, it will make a permanent stain on Parliament in regards to this issue because this is a monumental atrocity. Um, you know, Ken Loach made that film, I, Daniel Blake. And yes. He supports us, by the way. He made a film, a short video for us, supporting us. And um, we're keeping his office informed about, you know, how we're going and everything. Um, Good for you. And you've got a barrister uh, of the ilk of Michael Mansfield leading oh your legal goodness. team. So, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's world-renowned for, for getting results, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. he? Absolutely. And, um, you know, he oozes integrity and, you know, his presence in the court is just... You know, like when you see a film and one, one person commands the... the uh, the camera, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely, yes. No, he's very charismatic. Yeah. He's an ideal oh ally God. to have. But let me ask you this. So this judicial review uh, started yesterday, continues today. Um, what happens next? Well, we expect our claim to be granted. Why wouldn't we? But it is a reserve judgment, but it is within the court's power to say we'll lay down the ruling today. Right. But, you know, it's a very serious case, so they must decide for themselves what they choose to do. Mm. And, um, you know, once we get the green light, we've got an early day motion and temporary special measure and other parliamentary um, vehicles. And when uh, did you, when did you launch back back to 60, Joanne? And is it is it a sort of yeah. a grassroots body that you started? Um, in short, in 2015... Um, I came around the issue and in short again, by the time of spring last year, I thought, okay, I think I can bring a legal challenge. And I went about finding the right people, i.e. Michael Mansfield, etc. And this is where we are today. So I've been around this issue since 2015. And by the way, I didn't know that I wasn't going to get my pension. I found out, shockingly, um, back in 2015, right. uh, 2013, I beg your pardon. Um, you know, I was shocked to the core. So I know how these ladies feel. Mm, absolutely. You know, and I know that it was the truth they didn't know because of my own situation. But this isn't about me. I'm just trying to demonstrate how long I've been around this issue. We're not new kids on the block. Uh, you know, no, I of could, course you're I not. Could, and you no. deserve to be treated better, and you don't deserve to be discriminated against. It's that simple. Absolutely, yeah. So, look, what this will do is, we'll you know sort fifties women out, and that will open the door for other people who have been affected subsequently by this, right? Yeah. Because there are other people. Yes, of course there are, because the pensions business in this, in this country is a complete shambles. Joanne, great and good luck with what you're doing. Uh, I'm sure if you've got Michael Mansfield on your side, you will probably win. You will end up victorious. Joanne Welsh there from Back to 60. What a great campaign uh, and what a great collection of women who don't deserve to be um, uh, mistreated, who don't deserve to be uh, discriminated against by this government. There's another great George Osborne idea, this one, uh, where you make these women who were supposedly going to retire at the age of 60 work for another five years just five years away from when they were getting ready to retire. It's an absolutely disgraceful decision by the government and it needs to be reversed. We shall see. Uh, let's go back to the calls, though, because lots of you do want to get on. 0344 499 is the number. Yvonne uh, is up in Norfolk. Hello, Yvonne. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Mike. I'm, I just, I'm just enraged about this um, pension business. It's awful, isn't it? 
Well, when I started work, there was no Sex or Race Discrimination Act. Right. Um, I'm mixed race, and I um, wasn't um, paid the same as somebody who was white or a man for right. doing the same job. So at the beginning of my working career, I was discriminated yeah. against. And did you know that at, at the, the time, end. or was that something you discovered later? What do you mean? Well, did you realise that they were paying you less money at the time, or was it later on you found out? Well, yeah, out? it was standard. It was standard. Women didn't get paid as much as men until right. the Sex and Race Discriminations Act. That, was, um, that came about in 1976. Okay. I started work in 75, and when they introduced the um, law, they didn't... Uh, um, employers didn't automatically say, um, OK, that's OK, we, we won't discriminate you against you anymore. They went kicking and screaming. Really? Yes. They still sort of, they still said no coloured people or, you know, women still weren't um, paid as much. People, women still aren't paid as much as men now, are they? Well, in, in so, lots of situations, they're still not. No, it's a lot better, though, well, than it was. But this latest yeah, thing, oh, yeah. Yvonne, how did it affect you? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to have to work till I drop anyway because I don't earn that much, mm. you know. Um, right. But I do 12-hour shifts and, you know, 40-plus-hour weeks. Yes. So uh, you're working pretty hard, and you have been for quite a few years now, then. Well, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hopefully, though, if this particular um, law gets changed, would it not mean that you might be able to retire slightly earlier? Um, yes, I suppose it would, but I still... I don't think I'd be able to. I don't think I'd be able to afford to live right. on my pension. OK. That's the other problem. Yeah. The pension isn't very much. Yvonne, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much indeed. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. This is the official uh, D-Day celebration today because uh, although it started yesterday down in Portsmouth, it continues today uh, over in Normandy. Uh, the War Cemetery has 338 unidentified graves uh, in Bayou, uh, which is, of course, where the tapestry is as well. It's an incredible day today. Uh, and guess what? England fans are celebrating it by having clashes with the police in um, Portugal, where they are playing in the Netherlands tonight. What an absolute and utter disgrace. Loads of you want to get on. Many of you want to talk about Michael Gove as well. Uh, let's kick that off with Jay, who's in North Yorkshire. Hello, Jay. Morning, Mike. Morning, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks yourself. Very well indeed. What do you want to say? Um, I think Michael Gove as Prime Minister is basically an accident waiting to happen. I agree with you. I don't think he's got, he's got the cojones. I don't think he's got the right kind of uh, majesty for it. Do you? No, well, I think all he's bothered about is bits of plastic. Mm. I mean, what I, what I was say, I was thinking the other day, that he goes on and on about plastic straws and 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 uh, the cocktail stirrers. Some of that, some things can be recycled. Yes, but yet, but yet, he's quite happy for for you know plastic bags that are, that you can't recycle. Why not ban them? Yes, well, he, you know I, mean, I, mean? I mean, he's a typical for me anyway. He's a typical sort of virtue signaller where he's going on and on about climate change, which is not particularly a massively important. Conservative Party policy when you compare it to lots of other things that he could be talking about. Yeah, precisely. I mean, you know, I mean, for instance, the amount of, you know, if, if he's on the thing of weight, it was when I was walking dogs, obviously, because, you know, when you walk a dog, you obviously pick up afterwards. Yes. When, and 
and I was thinking, you know, that's a lot of plastic that's that's not biodegradable, but it doesn't it doesn't make people use paper ones or anything. <laughs> you know, no, really. well, exactly. It it just doesn't think. And my fear is um, that we're going to have another Theresa May on our hands, personally, um, because he's just going to do exactly the same with Brexit, like you were saying earlier, yeah. about just getting another extension and another extension. And what's the point in that? We've, we've voted to leave. And we need somebody who agreed to vote to leave in the first place as well, because yeah. what we don't want is is Michael Gove, who in his heart of hearts is really a Remainer. And, and you know, as, as I think uh, Andrew Bridgen or one of the, the Tory Brexiteers said to me, anyone who served in the Theresa May government and was there yeah. at the end should be immediately disqualified from becoming prime minister. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Jay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's go to Pat, who's in Stepney. Hello, Pat. Oh, hello, Mike. You want to talk oh, about football? Yeah, I mean, the reason, you know, you, you say it hasn't gone away is because a lot of these firms, right, like most of the sort of grown-ups in them are, are like sort of mid to, mid to late 20s, early 30s, but they've got junior firms. Yes. They, they've got their, like, might even have their sons or their sort of like cousins or whatever... They've got well, like a junior affiliation to the actual firm of hooligans. Yes. And so, what happens? I don't know how they work. These junior firms, but they sort of like ready. To, once these sort of older ones sort of get tired of it or stop doing it, they they sort of come through. And why do you think that they continue to do that? Why is it that it follows England around when it when it's been mostly eradicated from most Premier League games now? I know that some of the lower division football teams still have a bit of a hooligan problem, but it seems to know to to, to not travel with Premier League teams only with England. Well, I think what you'll find there's a lots of these hooligans that have gone out there that are barred from English football grounds, but they're not known to the police out there. Right. But I thought there was supposed to be some FA uh, method of stopping people who were going to cause trouble from travelling. I know you can't stop everybody from travelling, you know, unofficially, but supposedly they were able to do that as well at some times. Well, there's always some that get through the net. Yeah, that's the trouble. You know that. Yeah, I know, that's the trouble, Pat. Thanks. Let's talk to Rick Hughes in Glasgow. Hi, Ricky. Hello, good morning, mate. Morning. Good morning. What would you like to say? Uh, discussing this violence thing with football team. Yeah. Well, first of all, it is causing a bit of emotional distress with the rest of the country, you know, yeah. the rest of the nation. But basically, why why don't we just ban the English football team from international football on the grounds that nobody would notice? Well, they probably notice uh, in the World Cup, Ricky, because they got to the semi-finals, <laughs> didn't they, of the World Cup? And you can't have semi-finals uh, with only three teams. Now, that would have been a great joke if you'd said it about Scotland, of course, who couldn't even qualify for this tournament. Excuse, hold, hold on, mate. Hold well mate, played, Scotland. They've, mate, they've, they've the expanded the World Cup. You still can't get into it. Excuse me, mate. There's a telephone. I'll have to go. Yes, I know. I thought you would. Thank you very much. Ricky in Glasgow there, uh, rather making the wrong joke uh, from the wrong country. But good luck, Scotland, because, of course, I am of Scottish heritage and I will support Scotland in every tournament they don't qualify for. 0344 499 1000. It's a bit like Brexit. It's never going to happen. Maybe we should check in with a countdown clock soon. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.
If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.